Welcome to the Soulless Church Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Our passion as a church community is to see Jesus at the center of all things. For more sermon content and information, check out soullesschurch.com. So today I'm going to be reading Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and the night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor there are words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the ends of the earth. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs in its course with joy. It's rising from the ends of the earth, of the heavens, excuse me, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul, and the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple, and the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing in the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true, and the righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, much, even much fine gold sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous presumptuous (laughs) sins. (laughs) Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hey, let's really give it up for Deborah. That was some serious reading. That's awesome. That one word had like five or six syllables in it. Oh, you can go give that to the the back there, yeah. Summer playlist. Okay, so shuffling through, we're creating this, we have created this top 10 greatest hits list from the Psalms, which is nearly impossible. Um, So much so to where I don't think we've really done it because there's at least 20 top 10 hits in the Psalms, if that makes any sense. Uh, It's been really hard to narrow it down. We're we're, we're sort of creating this top 10 list based upon uh, just the sort of spiritual mountain peak effect that some of these Psalms have, where you could be reading through the Psalms and you just get to this moment where you're like, wow, this is a high height. The whole mountain range of the Psalms will lift you high, but certainly these certain points where you're just like, wow, that's powerful, that's profound, that's strong. And we're, we're picking the top 10 based on sort of themes as well. So there might be some psalms that you're like, you know, how could you exclude Psalm 27? And, and maybe it's because it's pretty similar, we'd say, maybe to like Psalm 34 or Psalm 91. You have some of these psalms that are very much about God's protection and, and trusting in his provision. So we're, we're going to kind of follow that framework uh, in, this, in our kind of selection process. But uh, we're already on... Psalm number three of our playlist, all right? So we did Psalm number one. Uh, The week before, I should say, the first week we did Psalm 40 as an intro. That wasn't in the, uh, that was like, you know, on on an album you have like the intro section, right? The intro track. Well, you want to make sure you listen to that message. It gives context for everything. That was Psalm 40. And then we started the first Psalm in the playlist was Psalm 1. Last week, it was a real joy to have a friend of the house, uh, Pastor Billy Venezia from Calvary Chattanooga was here bringing the word from Psalm 23. Can't leave Psalm 23 off of your list. 
And then this morning, as we just read, you have the beloved Psalm 19. Psalm 19. C.S. Lewis calls this psalm his own favorite. He believes it to be the greatest in all the Psalter. And C.S. Lewis, if C.S. Lewis says it, it's true, by the way. C.S. Lewis said about Psalm 19 that it's some of the greatest lyrics ever written. And uh, we certainly saw that in our reading, and uh, we're going to get into it uh, this morning. So if you'd like to take notes, why don't you write this down for a title, and you'll, you'll know what we're talking about once we get here. But the title of the message this morning is God and Shakespeare. God and Shakespeare. I've just been reading Shakespeare a lot lately, and it's, no, I'm just kidding. You'll, you'll understand what I'm saying here in a minute, but God and Shakespeare. Um, let's pray one more time, and then we'll get back through this text that we just read. Father, we thank you on a day like this for the reminder of who you are to us. Jesus, you taught us to pray, our Father who is in heaven. And so, Father in heaven, Abba Father, we come to you this morning because of grace, because of Jesus, we come to you as your children. And we want to meet with you. We want to encounter you. We want to feel like we're sitting across the table with dad at Father's Day brunch. We want to really encounter all that you are today. And that's our desire each and every Sunday, believing, God, that you want to manifest yourself to us. You want to speak into our lives. And so, Lord, we come with a receptive posture, even right now maybe, having to do that, opening up our hearts, opening up our lives to what you want to speak and how you want to work. And like every Sunday, God, I ask that you would enable me by your spirit to proclaim your word in such a way that it's you speaking so we just pray that together. We ask God that you would speak to us. Let me give you this time to do it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So I want to start off this morning kind of unusually. I usually start with one question. I want to start with two sets of questions. The first set of questions, I want you to think about this. I'm going to kind of invite you to preach a sermon to yourself for a moment. As you answer these two questions, the questions are simply... Who is God and what is he like? I want you to think about that for yourself for a second. C.S. Lewis, or uh, A.W. Tozer, rather, another two initial, you know, first name guy. Uh, A.W. Tozer said that what comes into my mind when I think about God is the most important thing about me. The most important thing about you is what comes into your mind as you answer these questions. Who is God? What is he like? That's the first set. Who is God? What is he like? Second question, how do you know? Who is God? What is he like? That might be easier for us to answer growing up in church or knowing somewhat of the Bible. But here's the more important question. How do you really know? How do you know that God is, let alone who he is? And in knowing that God is, how do you know who he is and what is he like? I think um, in our culture, as we're increasingly moving towards that post-Christian, post-modern, question everything and every authority kind of culture, individualistic, post-modern in every way, we as the church, we need to get used to asking and answering this question a lot more often. Not just saying, this is what's true, but people want to know, how do you know that? 
How did you come to that conclusion to where you believe God is who you say he is? Or that God is as you say he is? Or that he's the way you describe him to be? How do you, for a second, think about this. How do you know? Do you know? Are you sure? If so, how? Now, there's a lot of directions that we could go with this. And there's a whole school of discipleship called apologetics that deals heavily with what I believe in my heart making sense in my mind and really being able to articulate intelligently to a asking world why I believe what I believe. Second Peter 3 says that we as Christians should always be ready to give a reason, to give the reason, not just the, the testimony, but also the reason for the hope that we have. But here in Psalm 19, there is one specific approach that David takes to express how he knows what he knows about God. And if Psalm 19 were to give an answer to that question, the answer would be this. How do I know who God is and how do I know that God is? He would say, I know because, listen closely, God has chosen to reveal himself. I know who God is, I know what he's like, because God has chosen to reveal himself. Now, this is a really important fact and a really important point here. Um, years ago, I think the best explanation of this and, and really what, what, what the psalm is talking about and what theology would describe in this is something known as the doctrine of revelation. The doctrine of revelation is this idea that God has disclosed who he is to humanity, that God has lifted back the veil of mystery and he's come out in the open and been really clear about who he is and what he's like. You know, years ago, the best explanation of this was, is done by uh, Tim Keller in his book, The Reason for God. If you have not read that, that's like step one. If you want to get into more apologetics, I'd be like, here's your starting point. Read The Reason for God by Tim Keller and begin to get familiar with some of the most common objections to the Christian faith and also some of the best arguments for God. Uh, in The Reason for God, uh, Tim Keller expounds on the doctrine of revelation by and, and this idea of knowing God through what he's revealed by referencing a unique back and forth in the 60s, these two people of all people, between a Russian cosmonaut and C.S. Lewis. You know, it's like, you know, it's like the Chronicles of Narnia guy and an astronaut walk into a bar. You know, it's like that kind of a thing. It's like, wow. Um, years ago, this Russian astronaut, cosmonaut, he was one of the first to make his way outside of the atmosphere and to orbit the globe. And, and he was famous for reach, as an atheist, he was famous for sending back a correspondence from the cosmos uh, exclaiming that he has ascended into the heavens and yet still not found God. He said something like, God isn't here. I checked. I ascended up into the heavens, I looked for God, and I, I, don't, I can't tell you that I know that he's real because I haven't found him. Now, in response to this, C.S. Lewis says this. He says, it is a dangerous assumption to conclude that if there was a creator God, that he would in some way be subject to your own discovery, like an island out in the Pacific Ocean. Like, I found him as if this being would be limited to the realm of your existence. I mean, think about that. That's a dangerous thing to assume. Who says that the, the creator God can be or should be found within our realm? C.S. Lewis says this is a dangerous way to think about God, and it's certainly a wrong way, not just biblically, but just philosophically. C.S. Lewis goes on to geniusly explain. He says, 
He says, you know, the way that we relate to God is not so much connected to or, or illustrated by like the way that someone in the first story of a, a condo relates to someone in the second story. And I don't, if you're in that situation, I, I pray for you every night, okay? But he goes, you know, nobody in the, it's not like, you know, like the person in the first story goes up to the second story. It's like, oh, I found God. Here he is. He says, rather, the way that humanity would relate to a creator being God is better illustrated by that of Hamlet and Shakespeare. Hamlet, as a character in the author Shakespeare's story, is never going to stumble upon Shakespeare. He's not going to climb up into the top of the set and be like, oh, here he is, you author sneaking out back here. Like, I found you. It's illogical. That can't happen. No, what is the logical conclusion? The only way, listen closely, that Hamlet could ever know anything about Shakespeare is if the author chose to write something about himself into the story. If he chose in his mercy, in his willingness, to disclose some information as the author to the character as the author of the story. Does that make sense? It's kind of a simple logic there. And the same is true with God. He's the author. Hebrews 11 says that plainly. Hebrews 12, actually. He's the creator. The only way you and I could ever know anything about God is if he were willing to write something about himself into the story. If he were to make himself known. Now, you have a lot of different viewpoints of this. You have first, atheism. Atheism says, there is no God, and I know that. How, can you prove that? No, I, believe, I, believe, I mean, I know. I don't believe anything, except what I think I know. It's belief, it's confidence, okay? But anyway, confidence from the Latin, confide with faith. Anyway, all right. I believe this, that there is no God and he cannot be known because he doesn't exist. Then you have agnosticism, which says, I don't know. <laughs> agnosticism in a nutshell is IDK. It's like, I don't know. It's like, well, do you know anything? I know some things. How do you know those things? I don't know. It's like, are you a butterfly dreaming you're a man? Okay. Maybe. It's like, okay. Talk to you later. Um, agnosticism says, maybe there's a God, but we could never truly know. Now, there's... This subtle form of belief that's even in the church today, it's not so much professed, it's more practiced, and it's called deism. Deism says, there is a God, but I don't really know him. Or he can't be known. That's actually a real belief. A lot of the founding fathers of our country were deists. They believed that God was sort of this, uh, as Al Pacino described in a movie, this absentee landlord that sort of got the place fixed up set it into motion, and then went to his vacation home in heaven, I guess. You know. That's the illustration. That's this sort of view of deism. There is a God, but there's no connection. There's no personal knowledge between me and him. And then you have the Christian faith that says there is a God, and he can be known because and only because this God has revealed himself. Because and only because this God in his love and his grace was willing to make himself known to his creation. And when you read Psalm 19, it's like so much more than that. As David is looking up at the starry skies, as David is looking deep into the well of God's word, he says there, even if you notice that verse, verse 2, that there's this revelation of knowledge. Night unto night revealing knowledge. 
The idea in scripture is not just that God has been willing to show himself, but he has come out in the open. Like he hasn't hidden at all. He's right there to be found. I think of um, the difference between playing hide and seek with Penny and Evie, my two daughters. One's three, one's five. Evie is impossible to find. Okay? Like, I played hide and seek with the kids the other day. It was a little rainy out. And Evie found herself, like, in some back crevice behind some bins under my bed. I was, I was like, getting nervous. I'm like, where is she? Like, I've lost my daughter in a game of hide and seek, literally. So, Penny, on the other hand, the three-year-old, she doesn't know how to hide. Like, she, so, well, she thinks she does, okay? What she does is, we'll play hide and seek, we'll count. She'll go into the other room, and she'll stand in the middle of the room. And so you'll walk in and be like, oh, you know, like, remember the classic, like, where is she, right? It's like that whole thing. Is she over here? You know, it's like, like, bump into her, oh, you know. Um, such a contrast, right? And a lot of us, I think, when we think about God, we tend to think about God like Evie. Like, so difficult to come across. So impossible to discover. Such a hard thing. Like, you, you, if you seek, you will find, but you really got to try really, really hard and spend a lot of time and overcome all these obstacles. And when you read scripture, the picture of God is a lot more like Penny, like right there out in the open. If you're willing to see what he's revealed. Now, that's what Psalm 19 deals with, this correlation between God and Shakespeare. Psalm 19 specifically details the multiple ways that God has revealed himself to us, his creation. Uh, and there's three specific ways. And Mike, this isn't working up here, so I'm going to have to rely on you. Uh, the first, uh, the three ways, and you can write these down, is creation, scripture, and Christ. These are the three biblical ways that God has revealed himself to, to us, his creation, that we might know him and know that we know him. Uh, creation, scripture, and Christ. Let's look at each of these in this passage as this psalm deals with this. The first we'll start with is this idea that God is revealed through creation. Go ahead and write that down. Go ahead, Mike. God is revealed through creation. Uh, the first thing we see there as God is revealed through creation in verses 1 through 4 is this idea, this beautiful picture about how creation is preaching a sermon about God. We've seen this beautiful verse before, right? It says in verse 1 there, The heavens declare the glory of God. And the firmament, which is another poetic way to describe the sky, shows his handiwork. It's like a painting. When you come across a painting, the, the painting doesn't just give glory to the art. It gives glory to the artist. It shows someone's creative ability. It reflects this artistic skill that someone else had, it reveals handiwork. The heavens declare the glory of God. You know, this is written by David, the shepherd. I imagine sometime early on in his life as he's laying out in a field at night, looking up at the stars, and he just writes this beautiful, this beautiful lyric, this beautiful poem. He's looking at the star and he's going, God, I see you. No man has seen God at any time, but God, you are visible through your creation. It says, day unto day creation utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. Uh, can you throw up the uh, message translation of this? I love the way that Jordan Peterson explained this. He says, God's glory is on tour in the skies. God craft on exhibit across the horizon. Madam Day holds classes every morning, and Professor Knight lectures every evening. Uh, do you want to know God? Come to class. What's class? Unplug from the matrix. Get outside 
and observe God through His creation, for creation is preaching a sermon. I want you to think about that place that you've been to before that's proved this. There's an ocean spot. You know, family and I, we just got to do the trip to the mountains in Asheville. Wherever it is, it's a sufficient sermon. It's another part in the sermon series of God and His glory. From the mountains of the Carolinas to the Grand Canyon to all the wonders of the world to the vast deep ocean to the beauty of the skies, there's a sermon being preached. Look at this quote by George Washington Carver. I was told in elementary school that he invented peanut butter. I'm a big fan of him, okay? George Washington, I think that's been debunked, by the way, you know, stuff I'm really into these days. Um, George Washington Carver said, I love to think of nature as an unlimited broadcasting station through which God speaks to us every hour if we will only tune in. I love that. This broadcast that's going out, whatever that form of creation is. Now, let's get a little more um, theological and rather philosophical here to kind of break down what's going on here. Uh, There's two arguments, and that's just the word that they're called to describe debate points in the philosophy of belief in God that are are kind of support systems to what Psalm 19 is saying. The first, and you can write this down, is what we call the cosmological argument, also known as the first cause argument. This is uh, honestly a point of debate that has baffled and has entertained both scientists and theists alike for the ages. Where did this all come from? What was the first cause. It's based on the idea that anything that has existence had to first be brought into being by some cause. There had to be some cause that resulted in this effect. Now, this was naturally not even cosmological for me, but just logical for me growing up. Like, I had my stint in agnosticism where I was, I think, rebelling against what I knew about God and wanted to do my own thing. We'll talk about that. Um, but for the most part, there was something that's just innate and natural to the human and, the, and the, the natural logic to conclude that if there's something, something put it there. If my son comes in with a black eye, he didn't wake up like that, okay? Cause and effect. There had to be a first cause. And so what we've had to do is because our culture wants to do anything and everything except submit to the authority of God, we've just had to, we don't deny that there's a first cause, but we'll just make it particles, We'll make it immaterial. We'll make it unintelligent. We'll make it accidental. We'll say, in the beginning, particles. Even Judah, just yesterday, was talking to to Brittany. Brittany just told me this. And he said, Mom, who do people... This is literally what he said. Judah's seven, all right? Theologian in the process. He said, Mom, who do people think boomed the Big Bang? That's what he said. (laughs) Who do people... Okay, fine. He's like, fine, there's a big bang. There's this big, who big banged it? Who boomed it, right? Who came across and said, come into being? And, and of course, the scientific community, the, the secular culture not wanting to submit to the truth of God is going to default to some mystery, some we don't know. Okay, well, who started the what you don't know? What was the first cause behind that? Could it be that there was... More than accident, there was intention. This is the cosmological argument. Here's what Hebrews 11.3 says to kind of describe what we believe. Hebrews 11.3, which I'm going to pause there and say I'm really excited in the fall. We're actually going to be doing a walkthrough, understanding and studying faith. We're going to do a whole series on Hebrews 11. So here's a little preview to what we're going to be studying in the fall. Hebrews 11.3 says, By faith we understand 
That's important, by the way. Did you know that you can have understanding with your faith? I just believe. Why? Because I believe I'm a believer and I believe. Okay, chill, all right? Believe. Faith honors God. We're going to talk about it. But an attribute of faith is understanding. By faith, it's logical by faith to believe that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. The things which are seen are not made, were not made of things which are visible. Now, it's interesting because this was, this is before we discovered uh, the atom that this was written, where you have all things that are made, made up of things which are invisible. So the Bible just constantly um, lining up with true science. But this is a faith statement that says this. It's not in the beginning particles. It's in the beginning was the word. In the beginning, God spoke. And God spoke all things into being that are. This is what, this is what uh, the psalmist is saying. I look at the heavens and I see God. I see God, the one who boomed the Big Bang. That's what David is saying in much more Hebrew poetic terms. Okay? Uh, the second argument that kind of fits into this was what we would call the teleological argument. And listen, these are free words. Just take them, write them down, practice your pronunciation, whip them out tomorrow night at dinner, all right? Be like, this, this, the, the spread of this table reminds me of the teleological argument for God. Someone put it here. You know, you could do that. All right. The teleological argument for God is also known as the fine-tuning argument. This is probably my favorite. Um, the fine-tuning argument, and it's hard to say, like, what is the strongest argument for God's existence? Because it really depends on who you're talking to. Like, that's one thing that we can get really bad at. Like, I've seen this in the church. We get so passionate about, like, the knowledge of apologetics. But all we care about is, like, loving the information, not loving people enough to know what actually applies to them. Like, someone that's going through suffering, and they're questioning the goodness of God because of their suffering. Like, going up to them and going, well, do you know the fine-tuning argument? Like, come on, all right, you'll be fine. That's not always going to be the solution. But I would say from an entry-level standpoint, these are really good uh, foundational ways to think about the logic of uh, God revealed through creation. Uh, the teleological argument, also known as the fine-tuning argument, it, it speaks to the unbelievable, nearly impossible, mathematically impossible chances that the earth is ordered in such a way that it is to sustain human life as it does. As you kind of go through all the complexities of this, whether it's just the location of the earth in relation to the sun, the tilt of the earth, you have all the different... Um, um, perfections and, 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 uh, and accessibilities of the earth from food and water and air. And then you just go into the complexity of the human brain and its ability to reason. You, you just study what is in nature and what you find is complete order and complete beauty. And just like anything else that you would stumble across, whether it's a birthday cake on your birthday or if you were to find a watch in the sand at the beach, you, you would conclude this came from someone. Someone thought up the design because of this complexity. Now, I'm going to do us a disservice to try to explain this as good as someone like William Lane Craig, who is one of my favorite uh, apologists, William Lane Craig. If you're into this, read anything and everything that he's written. All right, so here real quick, we don't often do this, but I got a six-minute video for you. You're going to walk out with a fuller heart and bigger brain. Check us out, all right? The fine-tune argument. From galaxies and stars, down to atoms and subatomic particles, the very structure of our universe is determined by these numbers. These are the fundamental constants and quantities of the universe. 
scientists have come to the shocking realization that each of these numbers has been carefully dialed to an astonishingly precise value, a value that falls within an exceedingly narrow, life-permitting range. If any one of these numbers were altered by even a hair's breadth, no physical, interactive life of any kind could exist anywhere. There'd be no stars, no life, no planets, no chemistry. Consider gravity, for example. The force of gravity is determined by the gravitational constant. If this constant varied by just one in 10 to the 60th parts, none of us would exist. To understand how exceedingly narrow this life-permitting range is, imagine a dial divided into 10 to the 60th increments. To get a handle on how many tiny points on the dial this is, compare it to the number of cells in your body, or the number of seconds that have ticked by since time began. If the gravitational constant had been out of tune by just one of these infinitesimally small increments, the universe would either have expanded and thinned out so rapidly that no stars could form and life couldn't exist, or it would have collapsed back on itself with the same result. No stars, no planets, and no life. Or consider the expansion rate of the universe. This is driven by the cosmological constant, a change in its value by a mere one part in 10 to the 120th parts would cause the universe to expand too rapidly or too slowly. In either case, the universe would again be life prohibiting. Or another example of fine tuning. If the mass and energy of the early universe were not evenly distributed to an incomprehensible precision of one part in 10 to the 10 to the 123rd, the universe would be hostile to life of any kind. The fact is, our universe permits physical, interactive life only because these and many other numbers have been independently and exquisitely balanced on a razor's edge. Wherever physicists look, they see examples of fine-tuning. The remarkable fact is that the values of these numbers seem to have been very finely adjusted to make possible the development of life. If anyone claims not to be surprised by the special features that the universe has, he's hiding his head in the sand. These special features are surprising and unlikely. What is the best explanation for this astounding phenomenon? There are three live options. The fine-tuning of the universe is due to either physical necessity, chance, or design. Which of these options is the most plausible? According to this alternative, the universe must be life-permitting. The precise values of these constants and quantities could not be otherwise. But is this plausible? Is a life-prohibiting universe impossible? Far from it. It's not only possible, it's far more likely than a life-permitting universe. The constants and quantities are not determined by the laws of nature. There's no reason or evidence suggests that fine-tuning is necessary. How about chance? Did we just get really, 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 really lucky? No. The probabilities involved are so ridiculously remote as to put the fine-tuning well beyond the reach of chance. So, in an effort to keep this option alive, some have gone beyond empirical science and opted for a more speculative approach, known as the multiverse. They imagine a universe generator that cranks out such a vast number of universes that, odds are, 
life-permitting universes will eventually pop out. However, there's no scientific evidence for the existence of this multiverse. It cannot be detected, observed, measured, or proved. And the universe generator itself would require an enormous amount of fine-tuning. Furthermore, small patches of order are far more probable than big ones. So the most probable observable universe would be a small one inhabited by a single, simple observer. But what we actually observe is the very thing that we should least expect, a vast, spectacularly complex, highly ordered universe inhabited by billions of other observers. So even if the multiverse existed, which is a moot point, it wouldn't do anything to explain the fine-tuning. Given the implausibility of physical necessity or chance, the best explanation for why the universe is fine-tuned for life may very well be it was designed that way. A common-sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super-intellect monkeyed with physics and that there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. The numbers one calculates from the facts seem to me so overwhelming as to put this conclusion almost beyond question. There is for me powerful evidence that there is something going on behind it all. It seems as though somebody has fine-tuned nature's numbers to make the universe. The impression of design is overwhelming. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. Pretty cool. You guys still with me? Who followed the whole thing, like from start to finish? Awesome. Love you. You have a fine-tuned brain. Um, listen, this is why Psalm 14.1 says that the fool says in his heart there is no God. Now, that doesn't mean you go up to someone who's an atheist and say, oh, hey, fool, what's up? That's not, don't do that. It's not a way to win someone to Christ. But this is an honest assessment of someone not believing in, not affirming, and having faith in the fact that we understand that all things that are here were made by things invisible, by God himself, who finely tuned the universe as it is. Anything finely tuned reflects a fine, uh, the, a fine tuner. That's the idea. And, and it's just, biblically, it's just a foolish way to live. It's foolish. It's a foolish decision to say God doesn't exist. It's a foolish posture. In fact, look at Romans 1. Paul expounds on this. You guys have seen this, right? Romans 1 says this. It says that the wrath of God, the just and holy wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth of what they know about God. They suppress it in a life without God of unrighteousness. It says this in the next verse. It says, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. Keep going here. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal and power, eternal power and godhood, godhood, so that they are without excuse. And then the last verse, because although they knew God, here's the truth, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. It's a foolish posture. Now, this is not a knock, and this is not always a blanket to throw over somebody who's asking hard questions. Be careful that you don't become just a soundbite Christian. Be like Jesus. Be thoughtful. Be careful about where the person's at. 
Uh, there are people that are genuinely struggling to believe in what they can't understand. But this also does say that the, that the default heart posture of humanity is not to bow our knee and worship the Creator God. It's to ignore the fact that we know He exists because of what that would cost me. Like holding a beach ball underwater, the atheist, he says, suppresses the truth of God for a life of unrighteousness. Because of what they might know about God, they've neglected, they've ignored what God has clearly made known. Uh, scripture would kind of challenge this idea of God not existing. D does God really not exist? Or do you not want him to? Because it's clearly seen all throughout the world. And we'll close with kind of a happier tone from Spurgeon. Here's what Spurgeon says. We'll, we'll bring this around to be like, okay, good, creation again, okay? The best thing, I love Spurgeon, just I love him. That's it, all right? Um, the best thing is to go from nature's God down to nature. And if you want to get to nature's God and believe him and love him, it is surprising how easy it is to hear the music and the waves and the songs and the wild whispering of the winds, to see God everywhere in the stones and the rocks and the rippling brooks and hear him everywhere in the lowing of cattle and the rolling of thunder and in the fury of tempests. I just want to encourage you to do your best to spend some time in God's creation to behold him for who he is. Let's go to the next one. Scripture. God is revealed through Scripture. God is revealed through creation. He's made himself known by what he's made. The heavens declare the glory of God. All of creation is preaching a sermon. Creation, you could say, according to Psalm 19, creation is an apologist. Creation is an apologist every day preaching a teleological argument for God, a cosmological argument for God. But then you have this next step in Revelation that David gets into, and it's how God has not just made himself known generally through the created order, which is enough to condemn according to Romans 1, but God has also made himself known specifically, specifically through his word, which is enough to save. There's enough in creation to make us guilty before God. God is righteous in how he judges. That's, he's not subject to our fallen notions of what justice is, by the way. He's perfectly just in all his ways to judge sin as he perfectly only can. But there's enough in creation to reveal the fact that there is a God and we've turned from him. And yet God doesn't leave us there. He gives us his very word, which is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path onto salvation in Christ. In Psalm 19, verse 7 through 11 you have the psalmist unpacking and exploring the wonders of God's word as the second means of revelation, a specific means of revelation. Uh, in theology, we, we, we affirm to this, or we refer to this and affirm this as the doctrine of inspiration. It's the belief that all scripture has been given by inspiration of God and is profitable for correction, instruction, and righteousness, and all that we need to follow Jesus. Um, as Christians, let me say this, what we do with the Bible is we confess and we believe this book to be the holy word of God in agreement with Moses, David, Jesus, Paul, and the church throughout the ages. This, was, this wasn't my idea to go, I think, these, I think this is the Bible. This is what I'm going to say today. Harry Potter, not the Bible. This, the Bible. I think I'm going to go with this book. This didn't start with us. This started with Israel and their tradition. This, this started with Jesus who affirmed the authority of the scripture. It's been well said. Um, um, Dean McShane, he says it well when he says, he says, I don't believe in Jesus because I believe the Bible. 
I believe the Bible because I follow Jesus. And Jesus affirmed the scriptures. And so we confess and agree with all the church fathers, with Jesus himself, that this is the canon, the inspired word of God. It's both the canon like kaboom, all right? But it's also the, the rule and the measurement of God's word. Now, obviously to this point, everybody has an opinion about the Bible. Even in this room, we have differing opinions, differing Christian opinions, differing non-Christian opinions, differing secular opinions. Um, of course, it's the, it's the you know, most popular book, the greatest book ever sold, so much so they won't even include it on the best-selling list anymore because it just is always going to be a number one. You've got to have like the asterisk on whatever is number one. It's like, except for the Bible, it's always number one. Um, but, it, but it's true. It's, it's this common book. It's a popular book, the most famous book, and everyone has an opinion of it. What's so beautiful about Psalm 19 is that we get God's opinion of the Bible. I love that. It's like you get to sit down with the director and hear his heart for the movie. You sit down with the author and you, try, and you're, you're, you want to know what does he think about what he wrote. And that's just so important. It's important for us first as Christians. It's important for us to make sure that we have the same view of the Bible as God does. It's important for us to see scripture through the eyes of the Lord, not just through the eyes of culture or the eyes of our struggle. Uh, and this is what we have here. Now, Psalm 19, it's six descriptions of how awesome the Bible is. I love that. It's been called a mini Psalm 119, a mini Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is like, it's the longest chapter in all the Bible, where it's just like over and over again in different poetic ways being like, the Bible's awesome. It's so awesome. It's epic and awesome. Like, like 173 verses, I think. Psalm 19 here in these short verses is like a mini version of that. It says this, uh, David writes, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Looking at how God has revealed himself through Scripture. And he starts with the word, and he uses these different descriptions of the Bible. And he starts with the law of the Lord. The word law, it just means divine instruction. Uh, that's what the Scriptures are. Scripture is a manual for life given to us by the manufacturer of life. And it leads us in how we should live. And this divine instruction, it's not suggestion, it's perfect. The law of the Lord is perfect. I can give you instructions and suggestions all day long. Unless I'm quoting from the Bible, probably not perfect instruction. But it's perfect. And what does it do? It converts the soul. I love that. Another word for convert there is restore or transform. God's word, God's divine instruction is perfect. What does it do? It transforms our what? Our soul. Our innermost being. The soul is everything you are except for your physical life. It's who you truly are. There's been so many conversations about how to truly define the soul, but the soul is just the inner person. C.S. Lewis says, we don't have a soul. We are a soul and we have a body. It's who you really are. And that's what God's word transforms. We know this. It's important to make sure that we're not just people that let God's word transform like what we do. Divine instruction. Here I am to do the instruction. Right? I grew up hearing that. Bible, basic instructions before leaving earth. So it's like, okay, I obey, right? Like, no, no, no. The first place that the scripture touches is our soul. It's our innermost being. We're transformed from the inside out. You know, we don't want to become like the Pharisees, these whitewashed tombs, right? That obey the laws but aren't truly converted, aren't truly transformed and changed converting and transforming the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. That's the next word for the Bible. It's the testimony of the Lord. And the key word here in all of this is L-O-R-D in all caps. Yahweh, this is the covenant name of God for Israel. 
this God of covenant love, it's his word. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The idea there is testimony is it's God's witness. Like let's, so the, the Bible is like bring God to the stand and ask him about everything in life. The, the Bible is God's testimony. It's the testimony of the Lord. And you know what you can rely on? It's sure. It's reliable. It's trustworthy. I love this phrase here. It makes the, 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 the simple wise. Making wise the simple. The simple. Now, that's kind of an earthy Hebrew idea. Um, and it's a word picture. To be a simple person literally means to have... Uh, let me read it so I don't butcher it. Uh, the idea of this word, the root word for simple is an open door. This is really interesting. The Hebrew word for simple means that the door of your mind is open to anything. Which, by the way, is a cultural value. Oh, you're a Christian. You're just so closed-minded. You need more of an open mind. It's like, really? Like, I don't know about you, but I get, like, the stuff that goes on in here sometimes. I, do you ever find yourself having to close the door? Like, no. No. Like, imagine if you were just open-minded. Like, no, I would have already derailed this whole thing, okay? And so that's a cultural value. Like, when people tell me, like, you, you know, I'm just so open-minded, sometimes I want to be like, you should close your mind. Close that thing. You just let anything in there? God's word, it exists, listen, to make people that have just naturally default open minds to anything learn how to wisely conclude what they should allow in to be true. I'm open-minded. That, that's not a biblical virtue. That, that's actually a, a biblical danger. That's a, that's, a, that's a place that's frowned upon in Scripture. Get out of that and let God's word make the simple wise. It, it goes on to say in the next verse, it says that the statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. I love these old school words for the Bible. I'm going to start saying, good morning, everyone. Open up your statutes to Psalm chapter 19. The word statutes, it means doctrines or precepts. These are absolute principles for life. That's what God's word is. Absolute principles for life. And God's principles are right. They're correct. They're accurate. And when we live along the way of God's word, it, experience, it produces joy. It rejoices the heart. Think of Jeremiah who found God's word. He ate God's word. And he said, God, your word to me was the joy and rejoicing of my heart. That's what God's word does in our lives. He goes on to say commandments of the Lord. The commandments of the Lord, these are divine decrees or mandates upon man. Commandments. How to live. Not just instruction, live this way, but commandments. You're expected. This is a command. This is a mandate. And God's mandates upon man, because God loves man, they are, I love this, they're pure. It's a pure commandment. The idea there is clear direction for life. And that's just so important. The word there, pure, doesn't just mean like without, you know, bad motive. It means like there's clarity to it. And the result of that pure commandment is what does it do? It enlightens the eyes. I, I don't want this to sound boastful, but it's just true that if you see the world through the lens of Scripture, you see the world as it really is. You just do. And we have that as Christians. Like we, we, we get to see things as they really are. I don't mean like in a weird way, like, oh, yeah, I know, Andrew. You should come hear my conspiracy theories. I'm not talking about like that. I'm talking about the truth of what God says about life and the world and why we're here and what's wrong. 
God's word enlightens our eyes to see things clearly. Maybe for you, it's like you've gone through a situation. It's amazing what God's word can do to defog the lens. And you go, I see what's going on. I'm not going to react in the flesh because I know what the Lord's doing there. All right? So important to let God's word, the revelation of God, do that. Um, The commandment of the Lord. Now, the last section here is the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. I love that God calls his word fear, the fear of the Lord, or another word for it is awe and worship. That's what this book is. At the end of the day, this is not a book about me and you. This is a book about God and his glory and how worthy he is and how good he is and how beautiful he is. So much so that you could call this book the worship of the Lord. That's what this is. Like, so if, if any of our Bible reading is not leading us to further fear the Lord and worship the Lord, we're reading it wrong, right? If all it is is like 10 steps to the better you and your best life now, this, that, and the other, you're making this about you and not about the author himself. And so it's the, it's the fear of the Lord, and it's clean. I love that. Free from error. It's clean. It's clean. You might get dirt thrown on you by culture, the way of God's word from God's and heaven's perspective is a clean way to live. It endures forever. I mean, that's, at the end of the day, it's like every opinion is just going to fade away. All flesh is like grass, but the word of the Lord will endure forever. Wasn't it Voltaire, the French philosopher who, who stood on his doorstep and held the Bible up and said, in a hundred years, this will no longer be in print. And today, Voltaire's house is a printing press for the Bible. Like you go, it became that. It became a place they print Bibles. I love that. God's like, I got you. All right. <laughs> and lastly, the word of God, his, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Uh, and so David concludes, and I'll invite the band to come up. I want to be faithful to time here on Father's Day and uh, we'll have to cut the meal short. But um, David ends with this this description of God's word as, as being reliable. It's God's judgments, his divine word, divine verdicts is what that means. God's conclusions, the divine verdicts from God's holy tribunal. He's like, here's what I see. Here's what's true. And that's what it says, that God's word is true. And I, it's good to sometimes just sit in that, isn't that? Like, sometimes we don't know what, what is true. Don't, you know what I mean? Where it's like, what's true anymore? What's, what's true about culture? What's true about me? What's true about life? Isn't it so good to have a source of truth? It's been called timeless truth for truthless times. Just good to know. Are you struggling with knowing what's true? Get into God's word. His judgments are true. And they're righteous altogether. The conclusion is that they are to be desired, is the last verse. Desired more than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than the honeycomb. Uh, Honeycomb, honeycomb, that works too. All right. Um, the idea there is because of the truth of what God's word is, we should seek after God's word. We should hunger after God's word. And we'll close in worship by this last reflection. Um, and it's the idea that God is revealed ultimately through Christ. And um, I wish I could kind of get into this for another 20 minutes because you know I could. Um, but at the end of this psalm, notice the last verse where David, as he's wrestling with his inability to keep God's word. That's what he says. Man, and keep, when you keep the Bible, you're like, there's great reward. Man, keep in the way of God. Now, he makes that principle because that's true, but then he kind of numbers himself with all of us, which is like, that would be nice. 
wouldn't it be sweet to keep God's word and to obey God's word? He goes into asking God to cleanse him from what he knows about himself, that he, he often fails to obey God's word, that he's a sinner. And the very end of this sermon, David has this, or this psalm, David has this prayer. Go to the last verse. I think it's 14. David says, in verse 14, he says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my, notice what he says, my redeemer. God, you have, you're, you're glorious through creation. That's what David says. You've revealed yourself. I see you in creation. God, you have been specific in revealing who you are through your word. I get to know what's true, what's right. I get to have a way to live that converts me from the inside out. And then David looks at his own life and he goes, as glorious as you are, I see that I'm not. I'm inglorious. I am constantly falling short. My words and my meditations are in need of your grace. At one point he says, God, keep me from presumptuous sins. Keep me from sins that are prideful. He just recognizes his tendency. And here's where he's left to go. God, you are so glorious, but thank you that you're also my redeemer. Because I'm a sinner, he says. Scriptures say that Jesus is our redemption. The Christ. This is the last way that God has revealed himself. Through Jesus himself. You know, remember in the beginning we talked about this idea that we can only ever know God if he's willing to write about himself in the story. But when we're preaching the gospel to people, and you're explaining that to people, when you get to Jesus, what you actually get to say is, God wrote himself as a character in the story. He entered the story. He didn't just kind of give clues to his existence. He looked into the story, he looked into your story, and he knew that your story was incomplete without Jesus. So he said, I'm going to send my son Jesus to fill what's missing in your life to redeem you, buy you back to God because of your sin, despite even your sin. I'm going to go to the cross and become sin on your behalf. I'm going to rise from the dead. There's a hero in this story. I'm going to overcome your greatest enemy. And in seeing Jesus, the Bible says this, that in seeing Jesus, you get to see the Father. There's no more clear picture of God than Jesus. People say, I mean, I want to see God. I want to see him in the flesh. I mean, well, the question is, in you know, do you need to see God in the flesh? Because people have done that. Like Judas saw God in the flesh. The question is, are you willing to behold him and bow your knee to him and open up your lives to all that he truly is? And that's the invitation we have through the very person of Jesus. Jesus.